Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm Keith Poston. More than 20 years ago, a lawsuit was filed against the state of North Carolina by families and school districts in five low-wealth rural counties claiming that the state was not meeting its obligation to provide a sound basic education for all children. One of those families, the Leandros from Hope County, became the name that this lawsuit and the series of landmark court rulings came to be known by. A recent motion by the plaintiffs and an executive order by Governor Cooper may signal a new chapter in this ongoing story, and we'll discuss that with our first guest. In the second half of the show, we're going to introduce you to the College Advising Corps, a group out of Chapel Hill which is doing some remarkable things to make college more accessible to students across North Carolina and the U.S. Before we tackle our main topic, we open with our headlines, a quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. Governor Cooper has been very busy reviewing and signing a stack of bills passed by the North Carolina General Assembly, including many that will impact education in the state. The governor signed HB 149, Students with Dyslexia and Dyscalculia, that defines both as a specific learning disability and requires a special focus in both professional development and local school board strategies and tools. Governor Cooper signed Senate Bill 599 that overhauls the current lateral entry educator prep programs and revamps educator preparation programs. Also signed House Bill 800 that contains various changes to charter school law. One element that is fairly controversial is a change to how much charter enrollment can automatically expand without a vote by the State Board of Education. HB 800 raised it from 20% to up to 25% and in July 2018 that expands to 30%. Finally, the bill we spotlighted on last week's show, HB 704, on breaking up large school districts was not signed by the governor, but was allowed to become law without his signature. In addition to signing a plethora of education bills, Governor Cooper has signed an executive order to establish a new commission on access to sound basic education. This new commission will assess North Carolina's ability to staff schools with competent, well-trained teachers and principals and its commitment to providing adequate resources to public schools. It will include 17 representatives appointed by the governor from the fields of education, business, local government, law, health care, early childhood development, psychology, and counseling, and public safety. The North Carolina General Assembly reconvened this week for the first of at least two planned mini-sessions. They will take up any gubernatorial veto soon, as well, as well as, frankly, any other business the House and Senate leaders deem appropriate. They will most certainly be working on new House and Senate electoral districts to comply with the court orders that found the maps drawn in 2011 by the General Assembly unconstitutional, primarily due to extreme racial gerrymandering. Just this week, the court ordered that the work be completed by September 1st, just week, a week after the judges admonished legislators for not being serious about fixing it. Finally, President Donald Trump donated his second quarter salary of $100,000 to the Department of Education last week to help fund a STEM camp which teaches young students about science, technology, and math. U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos accepted the donation at a White House press briefing. In her statement, Secretary DeVos did not address the President's budget proposal that would cut her department by $9.2 billion. Remember, you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org, click on Education Matters, and read more about each of these headlines as well as other topics we cover each week. 
As I said at the top of the show, we are going to first talk about new developments in what is now the 20-year-old Leandro lawsuit, and joining us is the lead counsel for the school districts, Melanie Black Dubas, an attorney at Parker Poe here in Raleigh. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. Um, I gave a little bit of a summary at the very beginning of the show, but uh, just for our viewers who are not uh, sort of education, law, and policy uh, um, uh, geeks like some of us are. Uh, Leandra started in 1994. Families um, from five counties sued the state, basically saying that we're getting an, uh, an unequal um, and sort of not a sound basic education because of disparities. It started out primarily as funding, and then it kind of morphed into, it, went, it actually went to the Supreme Court. There were a couple of rulings, I mean, and you can correct me if I'm if I getting this wrong, but basically they did define um, a couple of important things, what it means to have a sound basic education, and then began sort of looking at what the remedies might be. Um, Judge Howard Manning, actually we have a, we have a picture of, uh, of our, our friend Judge Howard Manning we'll put up on the screen. He oversaw this case uh, for basically the entire lawsuit up until um, just last year when he both retired and unfortunately is, um, uh, is dealing with some health issues. Now, all right, here we are, it's 2017. Yep. Some things are moving now it seems like. So, why is this taking so long? It seems like a pretty long time for a pretty important case for it not to have any kind of resolution. So Keith, as you mentioned, the case was filed in 1994 and it did go to the Supreme Court a couple of times and so that's part of the reason it's taken so long. The, the first Supreme Court decision was in 1997 and that's when the Supreme Court defined uh, that the North Carolina Constitution does require the state to provide a sound basic education and defined what that is and it's a qualitative standard uh, it's a sound basic education that enables students to succeed in a complex and rapidly changing society. It enables them to succeed in secondary education and to compete on an equal footing for further education and for, uh, for jobs. And so that was 1997. And then the Supreme Court sent it to Judge Manning for a trial on whether or not the state was, in fact, providing that sound basic education. So Judge Manning held a trial and issued several orders and ultimately ruled that the state was not providing a sound basic education. He entered a judgment in 2002. That was appealed to the Supreme Court, which affirmed Judge Manning's rulings in 2004. And since that time period, we have been in sort of the remedial phase where Judge Manning was monitoring what the state was doing and trying to determine whether the state was remedying those constitutional deficiencies. Right. Now, okay, so that, so that, was, 1990, that was 1994, so more or less for 13 years now it's been kind of this monitoring mm -hmm. and, I, and I've, I've been to a couple of the hearings. I mean, it's, you know, Judge Manning was, uh, I mean, he was pretty uh, rough on both the state and frankly school systems for that matter. <laughs> but I guess it's still, you know, was there no timeline that like, okay, we're gonna, this has gotta be done. I mean, we're not, we are, I mean, at the end of the day, this is about failing our kids. And it so is. it seems like an awful long time, um, um, uh, you know, for the, but we'll, 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 tell you, we'll, we'll set that aside. We see movement now. Um, explain to us, you have now, um, you're the lead attorney for the plaintiffs, but you've come together with the state of North Carolina on a joint motion. Um, explain it to us. Sure. So, um, yeah, for those years, I think Judge Manning was giving deference to the state defendants. In fact, the Supreme Court ordered when it sent it back to Judge Manning that initially at least, I think is the exact language, he give the state the opportunity to come forward with a plan. And why now? Uh, a couple of reasons. As you noted, Judge Manning has retired and we have a new judge overseeing the case and, and Judge Lee 
asked the parties to make submissions to him to suggest to him how the parties see the case moving forward. So that's part of the reason mm -hmm. of, of why this happened now. And the other reason is what Governor Cooper said in his executive order. After 14 years, it is far past time for the state to come forward with a real comprehensive plan for how to provide every child a sound basic education. So enough time has passed. I think the court has given due deference to the state defendants, and the plaintiffs are really pleased that in response to Judge Lee's request, we were able to come together with the state of North Carolina and present a joint proposal to the court for a way forward. And the way forward is an independent consultant to, to uh, essentially talk to you and the state, uh, say you, the, the plaintiffs, mm -hmm. um, and then come up with a, a proposal, a solution, a path forward? Correct. Okay. So we've, yeah, we've asked the court to appoint uh, a consultant who would be an independent outside consultant. This is sort of like uh, what you see in, in other cases where courts are wrestling with complicated, complex issues. Sometimes courts will call it a special master. Here in North Carolina, we've seen it in school desegregation cases. In the Swan case, the court asked a special master to come up with a plan. Uh, in one of the cases we cited in the motion, it was a redistricting case where the Supreme Court told the trial court, you might want to think about having an outside consultant help with the plan. Right. And that's what we've asked the court to do, is to appoint a consultant with the expertise to advise not just the parties, but advise the court on what right. a, a true remedy for the constitutional deficiency right, There's a couple things like. I want to make sure I get to. One is the, uh, the motion is between you and uh, the plaintiffs in the state of North Carolina. State Board of Education is not a party to it. In fact, I mean, That's we correct. reached out to the state board. Uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to have someone on, but they, you know, they did release a statement. They've actually asked to be removed from the case mm -hmm. and to say that basically this public school system in North Carolina has changed so much. A lot of things have been done and that basically they're very committed to, you know, uh, high quality sound based education. There's no point in being a part of it. Um, I'm not going to ask you to sort of litigate that part of it today, but just so you know, that's, that is their statement. We'll have that statement on our website. As we wrap up, um, sort of what's next and what would be a victory uh, for your clients? Yeah. So again, this joint motion has been filed. It's for the judge's consideration. We've asked the judge to enter this order and appoint a consultant. Uh, we believe the court will take that up, uh, hopefully in the, in the near future. And if the court should enter the order, we've set out a time frame for October 31st for the state defendant and the plaintiffs to propose a consultant, and then the consultant will start work and within 12 months uh, report back to the court. Right. Well, we'll have you back on and some All others right. to talk about as we go forward. Thanks so much for being here, Melanie. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to tell you about a great organization helping thousands of students across the U.S. based right here in North Carolina. But first, see if you can answer this question. Adjusted for inflation, how much has the budget for supplies and materials per student dropped since 2008-2009? Welcome back to Education Matters. Did you correctly answer B? Adjusted for, I'm sorry, I'm sorry D, adjusted for, for inflation, funding for supplies and materials for per student is down 53% actually since 2008-2009. Next up on the show, we're gonna introduce you to a great effort to help students get to college that started right here in North Carolina and to tell us all about it is the founder of the College Advising Corps, Dr. Nicole Hurd. 
Dr. Hurd, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Keith. Now, I, I had have, I have, you know, sort of heard by reputation about College Advising Corps, probably talked, maybe even met some folks who were involved in it, but I think the first time that I really dug into what you were doing was when you were uh, uh, recognized by uh, President Obama at the end of last year. You went to the White House for leadership, so congratulations on that. Um, so tell me, you're the founder and CEO. What were the origins of College Advising Corps, and sort of what what did you what were you doing? So sort of what did the, what was the need that you saw that you, you were trying to fill? Well, the need we saw was basically our counselor-student ratio, which will probably shock everybody, is about 490 to one, which means every counselor has a caseload of 490 students that they're helping propel forward, whether that be testing, whether that be psychological issues, whether that be all the things that happen to a teenager. Um, and they also have a caseload that is supposed to propel kids towards higher education. And so the idea is, how is this ratio possible? Um, and we need a North Carolina that's going to be competitive. So how do we make sure all of our students kind of get that higher education experience? Um, and we can't navigate that when those caseloads are that high. Um, and then we married it with what I think is really important near-peer advising. So we had all these great, amazing recent graduates coming out of places like Carolina and Duke and Davidson and NC State. And so what we've done is harness those recent graduates, give them their first job is to go into a school and help those counselors, be side-by-side -side with those counselors, hold those counselors' hands together, and then most importantly, hold our parents' and students' hands together and propel everybody into a higher education opportunity. Right. That, well, that, that 490 students for everyone, I mean, that's, right. a, that, that's ridiculous and, that's right. and kind of shocking, but I've seen it. I mean, I've got, a, I've got a daughter who's a senior in high school, and at least my experience, and frankly, it, almost, it dates back to when I was in, in high school, the, the, the counselors are focused primarily on the kids who are already planning to go to college and sort of maybe know a fair amount about how to navigate this. That's one of the things that your program was trying to address, right, is that uh, all the other kids who either um, aren't sure or maybe they want to go, but they have, you know, they're coming from a family with, uh, without college graduates. They have no experience in dealing with all the, I mean, frankly, just the forms and the paperwork. It's hard, for, it's hard for me, and I went to college and went through the whole college scholarship stuff. So talk to me about that. Well, I think, you know, we recognize our counselors are heroes. They're absolutely the unsung heroes and heroines um, of our secondary school. Um, system in terms of just their caseload and what they're trying to do and really, like I said, making sure every student has an opportunity. I think for us, our goal is to make sure, especially our first generation students uh, here in North Carolina, our rural students, our underrepresented students, all have that opportunity. And again, this is so difficult. Um, it's so complex when you think about financial aid and filling out a FAFSA form, when you think about applications and making sure you really go to a match and fit school, a school that's gonna serve you well. And we want everybody to go. So whether it's, and when I say college, I mean it, in a very large way. So whether that's a vocational opportunity, whether that's a community college, whether that's a four-year degree, the idea is how are we going to make your dreams come true together? Um, you're North Carolina, 67% of the jobs in the state in the next 10 years are gonna require some kind of post-secondary right. education. Um, so, like I said, this is absolutely about um, creating lifetime learning, but it's also about creating a workforce that's going to make North Carolina and, frankly, the whole United States more competitive. And and, and sort of, like you said, it's the accessibility, and, and, it, and, and maybe some viewers don't think, I mean, it really is sometimes that, as you mentioned, having these, these recent college graduates working with students, so they've just been through it themselves, so they're... They're, they're peers, they're, they're very close to the same age, but they can walk them through it because it is, um, you know, a lot of, they just don't know how to access it. And, and really, even we hear about rising cost of college, it is still accessible. I mean, there are still ways, particularly when you're talking about um, low-income backgrounds, there's more um, opportunities. In fact, most scholarships now are need-based. So it is, uh, so they, it, it is basically sitting down with them and working through the process? 
Well, and it's still the best investment anybody's going to make in themselves. I mean, the reality is we think about houses and cars and ways we take out loans and mortgages. Your higher education investment is by far the most, is kind of the best return on investment than any investment you're going to make, especially if you go to a school, like I said, where there's the right match and fit and you'll have a meaningful credential. And so our job is for parents not to have sticker shock, um, but to see there's this thing called net price to get rid of some of this higher ed jargon, frankly, and make it very accessible. Most of our low income students are not going to pay anything close to what they're seeing on a website. Um, most of our students are going to get very, very um, important aid and they're also going to be able to really make different life choices if we give them the opportunity to, to pursue this post-secondary education. So again, I think it's really about making something that seems scary to all of us all of a sudden become not only tangible, but really propel you forward um, so your dreams can come true. So, so born here in North Carolina, the program. Um, mm -hmm. But you, So tell me, I guess, as we sort of get near the, you know, sort of wrap up here in, in, the, in the conversation, how does it uh, look now in North Carolina and, and you're, um, you're national? We're national. So we, um, we're actually in Virginia um, and other parts of the South. We're out in California. I'm actually about to get on a plane to go to Boston where we're every school in Boston's high schools. We're um, in New York. We're about to be in 50 high schools in New York. So 600 plus high schools across the country will be serving about 200,000 students this year. Um, but the exciting thing about North Carolina is we'll be in 127 high schools here in North Carolina. Um, again, this is one of those places where we think uh, North Carolina is an example for all other states. And if we can saturate this state, this very much aligns with President Spellings and her push for more rural and low-income students going to UNC system schools. We've got great leadership here in higher education and K through 12, really believing in our students. And we want to make sure parents and students now have the materials they need to, to really access that higher education. Well, it's, it's fantastic. And I, and I should, wanna, should point out that I know you recently got a, a wonderfully generous gift from the uh, John M. Belk Endowment, $10 million. Um, uh, they're all, and I should also, in, in interest of disclosure, John M. Belk Endowment is also a friend of the Public School Forum, and, but uh, they're a great organization that, like you, are also investing in making college more accessible in North Carolina. So, so thank you for what you're doing. Um, we'll have uh, links on our website um, on the show about how to find out more about it, including if you want to get involved as to be a core member, right? That's right. Great. Great. Thanks so much, Dr. Hurd. Thank you. After the break, this week's Leadership Spotlight. Each week, we spotlight individuals demonstrating exceptional leadership in education in North Carolina based on nominations from you. This week, we spotlight Travis Mitchell in Wake County. If America's gonna remain globally competitive, we've gotta develop the assets that we have in our young people. And where we can balance that playing field is by the investment of time in our students. Our mission is to empower students by surrounding them with a community of support that empowers them to stay in school and achieve in life. We build trust with students. Our teachers are able to push students beyond their comfort zone. And the beginning of learning is discovering what you do not know. Many kids don't know what's possible because they've never seen it. Project-based learning teaches students how to take what's around them, investigate their surroundings, identify a problem, and propose a solution. We're able to do project-based learning, 
We're able to do interactive instruction. We're able to do skill development in language arts and math. And we do it all with a process that utilizes highly qualified Wake County teachers. Indeed, because of funding from 21st Century Learning Centers and other federal grants, we've invested about a million dollars in teachers over the past year. Now, it is vitally important that those investments continue. Not only are we investing in our teachers, but they in turn are investing in our young people. So we believe that it is vitally important for the community to support after school programs, to support summer programs. Not only what we do here in communities and schools of Wake County through our Smart Academy, but programs across the country that are in your neighborhoods, that are in your cities, that are, that are flourishing because of the support from the citizenry in that local market. It is a vital service that is provided, and our country cannot continue to be the dominant player that it is on the world stage if we don't develop the natural resources within our communities that are contained within the hearts, minds, and the souls of our young people. If you know someone or a great program that deserves to be recognized, visit our website, ncforum.org, and click on Education Matters, and you'll find a link to nominate someone in your community. After the break, this week's final word. For people like me who live in the education policy world as part of my day job, Leandro is one of those terms that gets thrown about in just about any conversation about schools, seriously. Um, at its most basic core, Leandro is fairly simple and straightforward. The North Carolina Supreme Court found that yes, the state constitution guarantees that every child in North Carolina has the opportunity to receive a sound basic education. The courts went further to define what a sound basic education means and also what conditions must exist for this sound basic education to occur. A well-trained, competent teacher in every classroom, a well-trained, competent principal in every school, and enough resources that every child has an equal opportunity for that education. Now those mandates were upheld by the state Supreme Court in 2004. Judge Howard Manning, who I mentioned earlier, retired from the bench last year, had overseen the case since the beginning. Judge David Lee of Union County now has the assignment. Most observers would agree that Judge Manning held both the state and the school system's feet to the fire on whether they were meeting their obligation. Now, the public school forum of North Carolina that I lead has been engaged in Leandro and school finance issues more broadly since our inception. In fact, Judge Manning read from the forum's 2005 study group report responding to Leandro at his last hearing and also regularly cited our annual local school finance report. Now, in spite of good policies like the low wealth and small county supplemental funds, despite increasing support for disadvantaged students, North Carolina's public schools are too often funded and look like two different North Carolinas. Schools in our poorer counties, despite higher than average local tax rates, have far less available to invest in their schools than our wealthier counties. That lack of funding shows up in things like the inability to compete with wealthier school districts in terms of teacher pay, special services, and basic educational materials. Once again, there are new efforts now, as you heard today, to examine how our schools are supported. One from this new motion, to the governor's commission, to a legislative task force on school finance. 
all of these efforts will be wasted, in my opinion, if they do not address adequacy in funding. If we don't, our poorest counties will continue to fall further behind, perpetuating a have or have not scenario based solely on a child's zip code. We can do better. That's it for this week's show. Next week, we're gonna discuss the new and controversial innovative school district called, formerly called Achievement School District that is slated to begin taking over some of the state's public schools in the fall. You'll meet its superintendent, Dr. Eric Hall. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week.